Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. All right, so temper temper number two. I'm a little bit scared even asking this question, but have you all enjoyed this series so far? <laughs> I'm scared because of the feedback I got last week. Almost everyone, I mean, literally in our home group, I think we went around the circle and pretty much everyone felt like I was talking to them directly. People have accused me of having cameras in their homes, wondering if maybe this is directly for them. Tommy said afterward last week, uh, that was so good it made me mad. It's kind of called temper temper, Tommy, right? No, but really, I, I think that every single one of us have something to get out of this series. I think every single one of us has in the past or is currently struggling with some form of anger, right? Myself included. In fact, this series wasn't born out of any spying I've done on any of you. It was born out of my own walk with God. I I literally, um, now I got the concept for it months ago, but as we have gotten closer to it, God has more and more impressed upon me that this isn't necessarily for all of them. It's for you, Candace. A couple of weeks ago, I felt like I was sort of identifying some things. I've talked about this a couple times now between me and God. And at the end of this very long week of him badgering me with a few things, and we really drilled down on what I was actually feeling, at the end of it, he said, okay, now you have to forgive it. It's not enough just to know that you're angry, right? Now you have to do something about it. And that's really what this series is about for me. Last week, we talked about what's under the anger, right? How to deal with what's going on underneath what's fueling the anger. And really, uh, just as a reminder, we teach in series here, right? Not always, but the vast majority of the time we're, we're teaching in series, which means if you miss an episode, you're a little behind, right? Not saying you can never miss church, but I I do want to encourage you, come every week. That's the way you'll get the most out of this stuff. Understanding each week builds on the last. Even series to series lately, God is really building upon the last. And so it's amazing how he's doing that. Catch up if you weren't able to be here. You will absolutely get something out of today, even if you missed last week. Don't get me wrong. But maybe go back and listen, right? Effie.church slash live stream page. Shameless drop there. Okay, so today we're going to look at Temper Temper through another character's eyes. Last week we looked at Jonah's eyes and really solidly like what gives you the right to be angry, right? That's how uh, God addressed Jonah's anger. And so last week we were digging out at the pride that can wiggle its way in and cause us anger. What's really under the anger? What's motivating it? Today we're going to look at anger from another point of view and address some wrong conclusions we can come to about life because of it. So we're going to look at uh, the first book of the Bible today. Last week we looked at towards the end, right? Jonah is almost at the end of the Old Testament. Go back with me to Genesis, and we're actually going to look at the last 14 chapters. Don't worry, we're not going to read all of it. But the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis talks about Joe. I almost said Jonah again. Joseph. We can get away from last week now, I promise. Joseph was uh, the favorite child. We see the beginning of his story in Genesis chapter 37, He was born into a very large 
family, and he was his father's favorite. Not because he was the first, or not because he was the best, not because he deserved it. He was actually number 11, I think, of 12 boys. He was the favorite because of when he was born. That's it. Not by anything he deserved. He was the favorite. Now, who doesn't like being the favorite, right? It's fun to be the favorite. It's nice to be the favorite. You get that special relationship with your dad and all of that. But let me just give you a little bit of a different perspective on it. Have any of you ever been the teacher's pet? (laughs) I was the teacher's pet once in middle school. It was the worst year of my life. Not because I, I was enjoying the favoritism. I got to, you know, in middle school, it's like a big deal if you get to walk down to the office and put the attendance thing in. I got to do that. But like, it was from the worst teacher ever. And he was a Christian on top of it, like to advertise this fact and like to tell everybody that I was too. It was the worst year of my life being that guy's teacher's pet. So it really depends also on the teacher, right? Who's giving the favoritism. Is favoritism really ever okay, by the way, in a classroom or in a family? So what this did was he gave his kids special gifts. Do you remember the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors? He got the special coat, many colors on a coat. I know it doesn't sound very fancy to us, but back then it was a big deal. He didn't get many colors on a coat very often. And so it was this status symbol. Through no fault of his own, his older brothers hated him. And I mean hated his guts, right? This is where the the ugly side of favoritism rears its head, right? Other people don't like it. So much. It literally says in Genesis 37, 4, they couldn't say a kind word to him. His brothers hated him, hated him. And so 17-year-old Joseph has these dreams. He begins to have dreams. And you might remember these stories as well. They're they're literal dreams in the middle of the night uh, with things bowing down to him. And, And of course, his brothers and his family all interpret these to mean that someday you think we're going to bow down to you, Joseph come on, right? Remember, they hated him. So these dreams made him, made his brothers hate him even more. So one day, his father's, his father sends the boys, the older boys who all had to do work. He sent them out to the fields. Joseph got to stay home. But he said, Joseph, can, they've been out a long time. Can you go check on the guys? And so he does. He says, come back to me with a report from them. And in Genesis 37, we see this interaction out in the fields. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. This is the depths of their hatred, okay? They made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Uh, I want to address a few wrong conclusions we tend to take in our lives, but Joseph didn't. And I want you to see the whole scope of Joseph's Joseph's life today to see how it worked out for him and sort of the wrong avenues we tend to take. Wrong conclusion number one is that life should be easy. I think it's important to acknowledge here that the threat is real. Joseph had real enemies 
in his life. People that actually wanted to kill him. Some people think that if you're doing the Lord's work or you're just generally a good person, everyone will agree, right? Everyone will like you and the haters will be silenced. It's not necessarily how it works though, is it? Life should be easy. If I'm doing all the right things, life should just work out for me, right? And then when it doesn't, we get angry, don't we? When we abide by these guiding principles. Look, nobody's saying that they aren't trying to get you. Nobody's saying there aren't people out there trying to get you. The threat is real. Evil is real. Most people say, well, how can a good God allow evil in the world, right? It's like the number one reason people don't believe. A good God allows free will. That's why evil exists. He can't force us to love him. That's not how love works. And he is love. It would be against his nature to force us. He can't. He allows free will, and therefore evil has been introduced into the world. But his perfect will takes into account our ignorance, our weakness, our sins, and even the sins of others against us. He's planned for this. He may not have prevented it, but he planned for it. I think a lot of times in our lives, we equate the wrong things with the will of God. We think that if I'm safe, that's the will of God. If I'm comfortable, then I'm within the will of God. If things are fun for me, right? If they just all fall into place, then it must be the will of God. I've literally heard that from people. But if things just fall into place, then I'll know. Sometimes God works like that, but what about sometimes when he makes you work for it? It's not necessarily a good predictor of whether it's the will of God or not. No one is saying life should be easy. When did we begin to equate safety with the will of God? I think most of it's because we haven't read our Bibles like this. We haven't read it with the full picture of an entire life in mind, there's a theme so far through this series that challenges the comfort we think we are entitled to. We have this anger that bubbles up inside of us, like, why can't God just make things easy for me? I believe, right? I go to church, I serve. Why can't he just make it all work out for me? Aaron and I certainly went through some of this, right? We, we pour our lives into the church. We serve God with everything. Why can't Aaron be healed? For those of you who don't know, my husband went through kidney transplant in October, but it was a long, almost two years before that, dealing with kidney failure. And why? Why isn't God healing us? Right? We asked all of these questions with these assumptions that life should be easy. Joseph could have gotten jaded and bitter here because he did get thrown into that cistern. He did get sold into slavery. Why, <clears throat> why can't life just be easy. He could have drawn the wrong conclusions from this series of events, and he couldn't, could have written off dreams altogether. Guess those dreams meant nothing after all, right? I guess this is how it all ends for me. This is the end of my story. Those things just get me nowhere anyway. Listening to God just gets me nowhere. People are all out to get me. What's the, what's the point of working hard, confiding in thing, in people about things? What's the point, Right? Anybody recognize any of those questions? A little bit? How could God let this happen? 
And if you stopped at this point of the story, absolutely, those wrong conclusions might be reasonable. In fact, there's another one. The wrong conclusion number two you could come to through this is that God is cruel. Life should be easy, and God is cruel. Right? He's just a, a big torturer, sadist up there in the sky with a magnifying glass. He loves to torture us, right? That must be the reason for evil. He's, he's not a good God. Either he's not real or he's not good, which is it? God is both real and good. It's the wrong conclusion to take because the story's not over yet. The story's not over yet. Joseph was sold by his brothers. He was traded into slavery, left for dead. They didn't care. They lied to his father about him. His world believed he was dead. No one was looking for him. No one cared. He landed himself in a man named Potiphar's household as a slave. Potiphar bought him at the slave market in Egypt. And so the story goes on, and we actually see in Genesis 39 too, as we're heading into this part of the story, the Lord was with Joseph. Does it sound so far like the Lord is with Joseph? He's been sold as a slave, left for dead. Right? They ripped up his beautiful coat. They put blood all over it, and they took it back to his father, saying that he was dead. Does it sound like the Lord was with Joseph? Again, Joseph worked hard in Potiphar's household. He obeyed everything his master told him. And we see in verse 6 of Genesis 39, the rest of this story. <clears throat> so Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing, except what kind of food to eat. Sounds like a good life, yeah? Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. Notice he's not focusing on the kingdoms of men here, but the kingdom of God. He knows his blessings aren't coming from Potiphar. They're coming from God. We, we get a glimpse into Joseph's mindset here. He could have jumped on this opportunity, right? Thinking that his brothers probably stripped him of, of any opportunities in the future to have a relationship. He's a slave now, after all. He may not get a wife, right? This is my opportunity. I have to look out for me. I have to care for me because nobody else is. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. It would be a great sin against God, he says. Verse 10, she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day. But he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. When she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. 
Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave you've brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held, and there he remained. But the Lord was with Joseph. Again, does it sound like the Lord was with Joseph? A lot of bad things are happening to Joseph. How can both of these things be true? The Bible says it, though, right? So it must be. But the Lord was with Joseph in prison. Now, not only is he a slave, he's a prisoner on top of it. And showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Anybody starting to see a pattern yet? Joseph is mistreated. God is with Joseph. He succeeds. Joseph is mistreated. God is with Joseph. He succeeds. It seems to be a pattern in Joseph's life. If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? We love to say amen at that line. But honestly, most of us would say, well, his brothers were against him. Right? If God is for him and God is with Joseph, his brothers were against him. They sold him into slavery, threw him in a well. Right? Um, Potiphar's wife was against him. Right? She lied about him and she succeeded. How can that mean? These two things don't seem to make sense when you're actually looking at this passage honestly. Not only is he a slave, he's a prisoner too. Is this really the will of God? God never promises to protect us from everything. He promises to be there with us through everything. If we continue to rely on him. See, most of us get angry when life deals us a bad hand. We get angry and normal reaction, right? You get mistreated, you get angry. Seems pretty normal, but then we stay angry. And again, by human standards, normal reaction. You're in jail, you're literally still dealing with the injustice of the world. Yeah, how can you forgive it when you're still dealing with it? But in the kingdom, it's not okay to stay angry. See, one of my favorite preachers, Darius Daniels, talks about how there are levels to this. I actually linked his sermon in the sermon notes. Go watch it if you can. There's levels to this Christian way of thinking. All right, level one is the world's way of thinking. We can get stuck in in the wisdom that is out there, and it leads us to ways of the world. Level one, world's way of thinking. Level two is the church's way of thinking. You would think this would be the same as level three, but in fact, (laughs) level three is the kingdom's way of thinking. The world's way of thinking, the church's way of thinking, the kingdom's way of thinking. Jesus acknowledges this discrepancy in Matthew 5. He says, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Right? The law says... The church is the law. The law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. And that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. There's another level 
to this. Beyond just our way of handling justice, beyond the law's way of handling, and I mean government's way of handling justice, that's the world's way of handling it. Then there's the way of the church, and even the church would agree with you by saying, hate your enemy half the time, right? But not in the kingdom. Not when you're looking at things through Jesus' eyes. There is a different way of seeing the mistreatment in our life. There's a different way of seeing it. Last week, I was trying to get you to examine the anger from the bottom up, what's underneath the anger. This week, I'm trying to get you to see it from a different perspective. See it from the top down. See it from God's perspective, Jesus's perspective, right? Last week, we learned anger and bitterness can make us run in the opposite direction from the perfect will of God. Anger and bitterness can make us disobedient, right? If Joseph had gotten angry at any point here, God may have had to step in. He may have had to create a new plan. He may have had to correct Joseph to some degree. Joseph could have reasoned that no one is looking out for me, obviously. I'm now not only am I a slave, I went from being my favorite spoiled child of my father, wanting for nothing, then out of nowhere I'm a slave, and now I'm a prisoner on top of it. Obviously God's not looking out for me. The natural, human, world's way of thinking. The way most of us would be thinking in these circumstances. The way most of us do think, and we haven't been dealt nearly this bad of a hand. Right? We draw the wrong conclusions. Obviously, I have to look out for myself. Wrong conclusion number three is, I'm my own provider. I'm my own provider. He could have excused sleeping with the boss's wife because who else is looking out for him? Maybe he would never get that opportunity in this life. He could have sulked and pitied himself and died in that prison cell. Many do. Again, taking the wrong conclusions from what had happened to him, letting anger sour in his soul. No one from the world would have blamed him if he had done either of those things. No religious person of the day would have blamed him either. In fact, they probably would have said, it must be because of something you did, that God is punishing you, right? That We have this belief that God handles the world this way. He deserves to be in prison, surely, or God wouldn't have let it happen. And yet we know none of those things are true. He was both within the will of God and in prison, right? See, Joseph doesn't have control over certain parts of this pattern, and this is important for us to recognize. The pattern is Joseph is mistreated. God is with Joseph. He succeeds, right? Joseph is mistreated. God is with Joseph. He succeeds. So he does not have control over whether he's mistreated or not. He did nothing to deserve the mistreatment, right? So how could he prevent it? He doesn't have control over that part. He also doesn't have control over whether he succeeds or not. God did that. Right? It literally says the Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. He doesn't have control over that part. God did that. So which part does he have control over? Put the pattern up there for me so they can visualize this a little bit. Joseph is mistreated. God is with Joseph. He succeeds. Doesn't have control over number one, doesn't have control over number three. Which one does he have control over? This is the only one we would think in our 
world way of thinking, our human way of thinking, that we don't have control over. Right? We would think we have control over whether we're mistreated or not. If I just am I if I'm a good person, the world will return the favor. We would think we have control over whether we succeed or not. If I just work harder, if I just be better. In fact, it's completely opposite of the way that we think it's supposed to be. The only thing that we have control over here is that God is with us. Do you know why? It's not because we're in control of God and we can tell him what to do. It's because God wants to be with every single one of us all of the time. We're the only ones putting up the barriers. The sin that we allow in our life puts barriers between us and God. Otherwise, he would be with us. That's who he is. That's why he created us. That's who, how he wants to be with us. And throughout Joseph's entire story, I don't ever see him getting prideful or angry. He certainly has every reason to be from a human way of thinking, from the world's way of thinking. He acknowledges the truth for sure, but he doesn't seem angry about it. He never gets angry about it. He trusts God throughout this whole thing. And he, the only part he does have control over is trusting God. And so God remains with Joseph. Genesis 40 is how we continue this story. Verse 1 says, sometime later, remember he's in jail, he's in prison, but has some amount of power still as a prisoner slave at this point. Sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended their royal master. Pharaoh became angry with these two officials, and he put them in the prison where Joseph was, in the palace of the captain of the guard. They remained in prison for quite some time, and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, who looked after them. While they were there in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed they both looked upset. Why do you look so worried today, he asked them. And they replied, we both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. Remember, dreams are something Joseph is kind of familiar with, right? But he doesn't say, okay, I got this. In fact, what he says next is interpreting dreams is God's business. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. What? Anybody have a problem with this? Interpreting dreams is God's business. Go ahead and tell me. <laughs> Joseph doesn't take credit for his gift. Maybe he had learned his lesson about putting, letting people interpret his dreams from back in the day. But he doesn't take credit for his gifts. He also doesn't stop it. Interpreting dreams is God's business. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. And he proceeds to actually tell them what they mean. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream first. In my dream, he said, I saw a grapevine in front of me. The vine had three branches that began to bud and blossom, and soon it produced clusters of ripe grapes. I was holding Pharaoh's wine cup in my hand, so I took a cluster of grapes and squeezed the juice into the cup. Then I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. This is what the dream means. No hesitation, stepping out in boldness, right? This is what the dream means, Joseph said. The three branches represent three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up and restore you to your position as chief cupbearer. And please remember me and do me a favor when things go well for you. Mention me to Pharaoh so he might let me out of this place. For I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of the Hebrews, and now I'm here in prison. 
but I did nothing to deserve it. Hear anger in that? No, right? He's acknowledging the truth. There's no, nothing wrong with acknowledging the truth, but he's not angry about it. Skip to, he interprets another dream. We're going to skip down to verse 23. Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. His dream was right. Pharaoh promoted him, brought him back in. And yet here again we see Joseph, poor Joseph, mistreated, forgotten, left in jail to rot. He never gives him another thought until one day he does. (laughs) Two years later, two years later he was in prison. Two years later Pharaoh has a dream. And the cupbearer remembers, finally, light bulb, sends for Joseph, says, I know a guy who can interpret dreams. Now I remember two years ago, this thing happened and everything he said came true. Get him, bring him in. Remember that your God-giving gifts will make a way for you, by the way. As long as you're trusting him, remember, the only part we do have control over is our relationship with God. So as long as we're trusting him, we're just doing the next right thing, the thing that he puts before us, we're being faithful with the little things, doing what's in our hand to do. These are all very Christian-y sayings from the Bible. Yeah, as long as we're doing all of these things, God's God-given gifts will make a way for you. Not only the dream interpreting, but the admin skills that Joseph has learned, the, the hardworking nature. And so Joseph's brought into the Pharaoh's presence. He interprets the dreams for Pharaoh and suggests a solution for the problem facing him. Don't miss this. He not only interprets the dream using his spiritual skills, <laughs> dream interpretation, But now he's learned a thing or two. He has God-given admin skills, leadership skills, right? He suggests a solution as well. He says that the dream means Egypt is going to see seven years of plenty, of abundance, of so many crops they don't even know what to do with them all. But then they're going to see seven years of famine, severe famine. People will die kind of famine. Seven years and seven years. And Joseph has a plan. He literally suggests the perfect plan to fix it. Over the next seven years, they're going to collect one-fifth of everyone's crop, and they're going to store it away. And so Joseph's the man with the plan. Pharaoh promotes him. There on the spot, he says, okay, you get to rule the kingdom now. You're second only to me. Right? He gives him a, a fancy chariot. He gives him a wife. He gives him a new Egyptian name and a mansion. He hands him all of these things. Everything now in the kingdom must go through him. Do you think he would have been ready for that kind of responsibility if he hadn't first been in charge of a prison? Do you think he would have been ready for the prison responsibility if he hadn't first been in charge of a household? Do you think he would have been ready to be in charge of a household and to go on to save the entire land from starvation if he had stayed the favorite spoiled one in his father's home. He's learned a thing or two along this very rocky road, right? Sometimes God has to strip us of comfort to step into our calling. We don't particularly like it, but it's good for us in the end, and refer back to wrong conclusion number one, right? Life should be easy. 
If Joseph had had the easy life, would he have been able to save everyone from starvation? Would he have been the person God had called him to be? Now, anger keeps us from seeing this along the way. It clouds our judgment. It prevents us from seeing the bigger pictures. We draw the wrong conclusions when we're angry. Ephesians 4, 26 says, and don't sin by letting anger control you. It doesn't say don't sin by being angry. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, meaning deal with it quickly. Don't let it fester. Deal with it quickly for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Anger gives a foothold to the devil. It is not the devil in and of itself. It gives a foothold to him. We draw the wrong conclusions when we're angry. Joseph goes on to do as he promised. He gathers as much grain as he possibly can. In fact, he stops keeping track at a certain point. It says the grain is uh, like, like the sand on the seashore. You can't even count it anymore. So much of it. Egypt is rolling in the grain. And then the famine begins to hit. So we are seven, eight, nine years into him ruling the kingdom. Things are going well. People still have a little bit of food, but two years in, they start to run out. And it's at this point, <clears throat> Joseph has two sons. Now, the oldest is named Manasseh, which means God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. Did he really forget if he named his kid that? The youngest is named Ephraim, meaning God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. Even Joseph is acknowledging here the upside-down nature of God. <laughs> that his way of thinking couldn't possibly be God's way of thinking. That he doesn't understand God, and that's okay. He's got faith. God's going to work it all out. Literally says, in this land of my grief, God has made me fruitful. Seems like opposites, Yeah. But that's what God does in this new land. He's made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. He doesn't ever seem to run from the grief. He acknowledges it. It hurt what they did. It hurt that I had to go through all of this. But look what God has done from it. God gives him the life he always wanted, a life of meaning, a life of family. If you're a good guy, things will work out for you in the end, right? That's what the, this is honestly where the Disney version of this story would probably end. He worked it out in the end. He got everything he ever wanted. He's the man with a plan. He's solving the problems. But this isn't Disney. This is the Bible. And so not only does God care about the blessings, right? But he cares about the state of your heart. In fact, I think he cares more about the state of your heart than your blessings. As we learned last week, not only does God care about Jonah, he cares about Nineveh right? Not only does God care about Joseph, but he cares about those brothers, those evil betraying brothers too. See, the famine that hit Egypt also hit Canaan, where Joseph was from. Joseph's father heard that Egypt had grain. And so unaware of anything that had gone on in Joseph's life, because he thought he was dead, he sends the brothers to go get some for their family before they starve. And so these brothers arrive in Egypt, totally ignorant to everything that had gone on. They have no idea 
what Joseph has become. After all, he had been given the new Egyptian name, right? The, the uh, Egyptian wife, the Egyptian mansion. He Just like in the movies, which I assume are historically correct, they had eye makeup Egyptians, right? They weared funky hats. Yeah, so they, they didn't recognize him, for sure. And through a series of events in chapters 42 to 44, which I'm not going to read all of today, but these brothers present themselves to Joseph. They ask him for grain. Our families are starving back home. And Joseph, amazingly, doesn't immediately trust his brothers. He blesses them abundantly. He asks them all kinds of questions through an interpreter so they don't know if he can speak the same language. He gives them all the grain that he can, plus he puts their money back in their sacks as they go home. He blesses them abundantly, but he doesn't trust them immediately. He tested them. Remember, the last time he showed them one of his gifts, they sold him into slavery and considered killing him. So, right? Even though it all worked out for Joseph in the end, doesn't mean he had to trust them again. And this is wrong conclusion number three. Once we get around to this point of being confronted with our past, the people that hurt us, we often think that forgiveness equals trust. But to forgive someone means we have to trust them again. In fact, ask almost anyone in your life if forgiveness can be earned. People will say yes. They're wrong. Forgiveness can only be given. This is why most people can't come to Jesus when they don't have this baseline understanding for what forgiveness is because we don't deserve it. Why would a good God give a very evil me forgiveness? It doesn't make sense. I, I have to earn it, right? We think we can just clean up our lives enough to earn God's forgiveness. That's not the way forgiveness works. Forgiveness can only be given, can only be given, but trust is earned. And even in the kingdom, by the way, God's love is unconditional, but his blessings, his responsibilities are very conditional. In fact, there are harsher punishments for leaders who go wrong, right? We have to earn trust. Even in God's kingdom, those with faithful with a little will be given much. God gives forgiveness, but trust is earned. And we see this in Joseph. He sends them through a series of tests. He throws them all in jail for three days. He keeps one and sends the rest back to the father with their money in their sacks, just seeing what they will do with it, right? He's testing them. In fact, right at the beginning of his story, Joseph tells on his brothers. It's like a very minor detail, but he knows how evil they were even before they tried to throw him in the well, right? He's testing them on all kinds of levels. He's testing their ability to manage finances. He's testing their honesty. He's testing whether they're repentant. He, he puts them through all kinds of tests. But in chapter 45, Joseph seems to be convinced. The brothers pass all the tests. They seem to do everything well. And so they also seem to sort of truly feel bad for what they did. Remember, they don't think Joseph can understand them, but he can. So he's hearing all of their conversations between themselves as well. Again, if you haven't read the story, go back and read Genesis 37 through 50. It's an amazing story. But <clears throat> these brothers are doing everything in their power to make up for it. They're serving their father. They're serving their families. And so in Genesis 45, verse 3, we pick up the story. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. He finally reveals himself. He's dying to know whether his father is still living. 
is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. What? Do not be distressed. Anybody else want them to be just just a little distressed, maybe? Just a little bit? (laughs) Right? Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Why? Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you. Again, what? Right? Joseph not only sees all of this all throughout the story, he not only sees all of this as for him. His promotion is not for him. It's for them? Are you kidding? For the next five years, there'll be no plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord to his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You and your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. This is the kind of happy ending Disney sometimes deprives us of, but the Bible gives us. This is the happy ending that requires something of us. It's not just the bad guys are always going to be bad guys and good will always win. That's not how it seems on the surface of the story at all. It's how it turned out in the end. And the bad guys become good guys. <laughs> or what, what? What is happening here? Joseph could have been angry and stayed angry. He could have drawn the wrong conclusions about why he was in the state he was in. He could have blamed God for the slavery and the prison and the brother's betrayal and being forgotten about. Now, every time I read this story, I wonder, why did he not just escape? Right? If he had so much power as a slave... He was trusted with everything. And he had so much power as a prisoner. He was trusted with everything. I bet there were opportunities to escape, to go back home to his homeland, to kill all his brothers and take what was rightfully his. Right? He he could have done that. There are all kinds of wrong conclusions we take all of the time. Instead, Joseph humbled himself. He worked hard, making any place that he was in better because he was in it. He gave God all the credit for his gifts. He chose to follow him, even when it made life a little harder, a lot harder. He gave, all, he gave God all the credit for his gifts. He didn't draw the wrong conclusions in anger. He, he knew that what was meant for evil, God can use for good. And in the end, he saw his purpose as serving those who hurt him. <laughs> Do we really have a right? to hold on to unforgiveness? Do I really have a right to hold on to unforgiveness? I haven't been treated nearly as bad as Joseph. And he did it. I haven't been 
treated nearly as bad as my Savior. And he did it. Joseph and Jesus have a few things in common, right? They both knew that favor is fickle. That favor can't be trusted. But God can. God can use a cupbearer of all things at the right time to the right people at the right place and suddenly promote you over everything, but not if you've been drawing the wrong conclusions. Not if you've been angry and looking at the past instead of looking at God. Have you been drawing the wrong conclusions? And most of us have. Genesis 50 we see the very end of this story. Verse 19 says, But Joseph said to them, this is after their father dies, and suddenly the brothers are worried again. Right, With our father gone, what is he going to do? Now he has a chance to get the right retribution on us. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph didn't come to this conclusion at the end of his life. He came to it and he kept coming to it all throughout his life. You have to know this ending to see it clearly, but clearly he never got angry. Clearly he never chose unforgiveness over forgiveness. Clearly he never got bitter. Sure he was hurt. Sure he was in pain. Sure he grieved. But he knew all along that God was doing something. God was doing something. He never got ignorant or arrogant. He worked hard. He did what was put before him with gladness and he forgave. And instead of believing that life should be easy and getting angry that it isn't, he worked hard. Instead of believing that God is punishing me because he didn't prevent this, why was God not looking out for me? He didn't believe that. He actually looked for the good in every situation. And instead of taking things into his own hands, believing that he has to be his own provider, he waited upon the Lord and then provided for others. That's kingdom thinking. And not only am I put here on this planet for me and my purposes, and what is God going to give to me? What is God going to deliver me from? But how can I bless others? No matter where I'm at, the wrong conclusions are all over the place. The wrong conclusions are easy. The right conclusion is that life's not always easy. But God is always good. The right conclusion is that he is my provider and deliverer, and he calls me to forgive. So what right do I possibly have to not forgive? Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Know your place. Know your place. Your place is not to choose unforgiveness. Your place is not to call injustice, call justice down from heaven. God is the only one who can righteously judge. And as we learned last week, he graciously withholds way more than he uses it. He withholds. He gives us grace over and over and over. Last week, I asked you to look under the anger. What's fueling it, right? 
This week, I'm asking you to transcend the anger a little bit. I know that's a new agey word, but look above it, right? Transcend the anger a little bit. Look at your situations from God's point of view. Maybe he was developing you all this time. Maybe you needed to have those experiences to be able to be trusted with the next one. A reward for your last challenge is your next challenge. Overcome it so God can give you more. Faith is what's above the anger. Faith gives you the perspective that God's got this. It doesn't matter what prison I'm in, what kind of slavery I find myself in right now, what kind of injustices the world has done to me. It doesn't matter who's mistreated me. All that matters is what's between me and God because I can trust him to promote me in the end, not just for my sake, but for others too. I have a purpose in this life and it's bigger than me. When we have God on the right place on his throne in our minds, we can see things from his perspective a little bit. Anger not only clouds that, it prevents it. Remember the pattern? Joseph was mistreated. God was with him. Joseph succeeded. A life can mistreat us sometimes. Absolutely, through no fault of your own. But if we maintain this right conclusion, this faith, even before the mistreatment is over, God will be with us. He wants to be with you. He wants to cause you to succeed. It's impossible to operate from faith and fear at the same time. And I would argue faith and anger don't mix real well either. You can't be angry about the things that have happened to you and also thank God that they happened because of where you are now. You must let go of one or the other. Let go of the anger. It's not doing anything for you anyway. It's turning your insides upside down. It's causing infection in your soul. Let go of it. Have faith that God's got this. Press into your relationship with him. Remember, we're not digging at behavior here. We're not just saying you should punch walls less and yell at people less. We're not just saying be good little boys and girls, right? This isn't just behavior. Temper, temper isn't about our actions. Temper, temper is about our guiding principles. What's under the anger? The pride, the lust, the greed. Deal with those things, but also deal with what's above it. The faith perspective. Deal with your relationship with God. If you focus on that, the rest will work itself out. I promise. Can we trust God enough to come to the right conclusions? To forgive even when they don't deserve it. To forgive even when we're still feeling the pain. To forgive when we're still in slavery. And we're still in prison because of what they did. Can we have faith that God's got this? That God's got me. That God's going to use me again for his purposes, for something bigger than all of this. Can we let faith win the battle with anger? Father, today, we focus our hearts on you. We humble our hearts before you. 
as we learned last week, pride just gets in the way of our relationship with you. So Father, we put it away. We humble ourselves. We focus ourselves on you. Father, change our hearts and minds. Transform us from the inside out using the power of your word. Teach us to be more like you. Teach us to set aside the anger, to deal with what's going on underneath it, to develop our faith above it. Yeah, we might still feel it sometimes, but we can so easily go around it now. We can set it aside and focus on our relationship with you. God, make that true of every single person in this room. We would be able to see past the emotions. Still feel them. I'm not saying we're not going to feel them. But now we can see past them. We can have faith that you've got this for us. That you care about our name being great more than we do. That you care about the blessings in life that we get more than we do. That you know us better than we know ourselves. We trust you, God. In Jesus' name. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I-N-N. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links. So let's do this together. Heavenly Father, this is your time. Set apart in our week, whether it's the beginning or the end for you because you have something in store for us when your people give to you you give back to them so we offer you right now praise worship adoration recognition love father as an offering to you would you be honored and glorified in jesus name i pray amen you guys ready to worship let's do it
and it's heavenly at the table with the king it's the real thing first john 4:10 this is real love not that we loved god but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. The word love in Greek, agape love used here, means love that sacrifices, love that gives of itself, love that pours itself out. You see, this is what real love is, that God, to gain nothing for himself, gave everything for us. That is real love. It is everything. It is the air in your lungs. It is the breath you breathe. It is the life you have. It is the gift for you given freely. That's love. That's love. It's offered, but must be received. Heavenly Father, you love. You are love. We cannot know you and not know love. Sacrificial love. Everything love. We do it all again just for you. Just for one. That is the love that we experience. That is the love you pour out. That is the love available to all. Let us receive it, walk in it, and then, Father God, help us to reflect it to this broken and hurting world. They need to see your love. It's the only thing. It is everything. Jesus, thank you that you loved us enough and that your love is enough. Help us to remain in constant awareness of that love that overrides, that, that, that multiplies, that, that frees us, lifts us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this start of something powerful lives in this room, that you're communicating love right now. In Jesus' name, my friend. Amen. The thing about God's love is it's when you experience it, you should want to share that when we're in this worship moment together, you are not alone. We've gotten here together. The team has led us, but you have led one another. So take some time. Thank somebody around you. Thank each other. Heck, take a bow because we have worshiped our God of love. Introduce yourself to somebody nearby you. Let them know you love them and you're glad they're here today as you make your way to your seats.